The book of Genesis, as we talked about before, is a book of beginnings, right? And we, we recognize and know that. So what I want to do this evening is kind of give somewhat of, a, of an overview of what we have seen. When you look at the book of Genesis, it traces the history of a particular family. The book of Genesis traces the history. In fact, as I've said many times, this book is a genealogy. It's written like a genealogy, right? So if you're, if you're writing a genealogy, uh, many of us, you know, this one begot, that one begot, that one. You use all those begots and you, you talk about it that way. And at the same time, that's exactly what we see in Genesis. Starting with Adam and Eve and then seeing their children and then going in chapter 4 where you, uh, you see, chapter 5, where you see the list of 10 generations there and it just kind of lists those names out. And then it stops and it talks about Noah. So as I've, as I've said what you see is you see this list of names, this family line. And then when someone or an event during the life of someone becomes very important, it stops and tells that story, right? So there in chapter 5, you get those 10 generations. And it just mentions how long they lived, who their son was that passed on the line, and they continued, right? And then tells you when they died. But then you get to the chapter 6, and it stops because you got this one named Noah, and it tells what happened because something significant happened in the life of Noah. And then you get after Noah, and it tells us another list of names that comes down through of these family. And then you get to this one named Abraham or Abram at the time, and it stops because something significant happened right there. And when you get to Abram, everything changes. And so it changes because God is going to make his promises more clear in Abram. Now, if we go back, I want you to remember that as God created everything and it was good, sin entered in. So as I've said many times, the good old days ended in Genesis chapter 3 as sin enters in. And we talked about that. I don't want to go through everything because I can spend, we can go back through Genesis, but it might take us a couple months. But in Genesis 3, you see how sin enters in, and once sin enters in, now you have the consequences of sin have to be dealt with and deal with. Once Genesis 3 happens, there's no turning back. You have to go. In fact, as I said before, as those of us as Christians, as we know, once Genesis 3 happens, the cross is inevitable. There has to be the cross. And so there's no turning back to go back into Eden. There's no turning back to go back to the way things were. You have to go through the cross. You have to go through something. Something has to be dealt with. And so in Genesis chapter 3, you see sin entered in, but then you see God pronouncing the consequences of sin as we know these curses that come. And when he does this, he starts by speaking to the serpent himself. And he tells the serpent, he said, you are going to eat dust and crawl on your belly. You'll never be satisfied. But he tells him this one thing. And if you, if you have your Bibles, you remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3:15 is that first gospel. The proto-evangelion is what they've called it throughout history. Proto meaning first, good news, uh, evangelion. So you have that first gospel, that first hint that God is going to bring about uh, uh, some way. He's going to deal with this serpent in a way that he wins. And so in Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise in Scripture ultimately after the fall. And in this promise, he's saying, serpent, there's going to become a battle between you and your seed, your offspring, your family, if you will, and the seed of this woman. This particular family that's coming. There's going to be a battle. And in some ways, you are going to deal some blows to them. You're going to bruise his heel. But with the heel that you bruise, he is going to deal the final death blow to you in crushing your head. And so all of scripture then is looking for this serpent crusher. Who is it that's going to deal with the great disturber of the peace of Eden? Who is it that's going to deal with the, with the one who introduced sin and disruption into God's good world? Who is finally going to be that serpent crusher? And so in Genesis, you start this particular family line that is to bring about the one who will crush this serpent. 
And that's what Genesis begins to do. And God makes promises. He makes promises to Noah after uh, the flood comes and God deals with sin in that way. He says, I'm not going to deal with sin again in the same way. And so he, he puts the sign of the bow in the sky to testify that he's not dealing with sin the same way. Next time, he'll deal with it in a different way. And then he comes and he comes to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, you find these Three promises that are made to Abraham. He says to Abraham as he calls him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, right? He calls him out and he says to Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I am going to give you a land and I'm going to bless you. These three promises become the core of the Old Testament text. Really all of scripture. They become the heart of it. The serpent crusher is going to come from this family and this family is going to be the one that inherits the land, the, the, the one that becomes great and rules over all others, and it's going to be the one that God blesses over against every other family. Ultimately, this is the one. And so this promise begins to lay out. And as I've said, this is the outline of the Old Testament. You'll see in Genesis, how is this family going to, going to become great? That's what we've been walking through in Genesis. And we'll see how it happens, especially in Exodus chapter 1, where it says this family has become great. And then you'll see in Exodus, they begin the process of where is the land and how are they going to inherit it? They're going to march out of Egypt. He's going to take them through the wilderness and take them into the promised land. They inherit the land. And then how does the blessing come? The blessing comes through a king that will rule God's people in God's for, uh, as God's under-shepherd, if his will, You're this vice-regent, his king that will rule. That's how the blessing will be coming to his people. And so you see that after, after Joshua and they go into the land and inherit it, you start the book of Judges. Who is it that will lead God's people? Who is it that will be the one that, that brings the blessing as the king? Who is that one? And all the rest of the history of the Old Testament is speaking towards that. Who is this one? And in all of this process, this one, what you realize, the one that comes is the one that ultimately will make them great. It's the one that ultimately will give them the place, the land. And that one who comes is the one who will be their king and rule over them. You see all of these themes running throughout the Old Testament, starting here in Genesis 12, really, and running throughout the rest of it. And so who is this? That's who they're looking for. And remember, I, I use, try to use some illustrations to help understand how the scriptures work. The Old Testament is Christian scripture, right? It is pointing us to Jesus. Y'all remember, some of y'all have been with me for some time, some of you are new. I love new people because that way I can tell the same old illustration that I've used ten times and y'all have never heard it before. But the scriptures, y'all remember, everybody in here, y'all remember my Bob Ross illustration? Right? One of my favorite painters of all time is not Pablo Picasso or Michelangelo. It's Bob Ross who had a TV show and an afro and a long pinky nail. That was about that long and I always admired that. And Bob Ross would make pictures and he would draw landscapes and he had happy little trees. Y'all know what I'm saying. I grew up. I'm, I'm old. And so I grew up when we only had four channels, and one of them was PBS, and Bob Ross came on PBS. And my grandma would not let me watch regular TV. You know what that meant? Had to watch PBS. Regular TV had bad stuff on it. So Bob Ross was on my favorite show. And when he draws it, I feel like he messes up every single time, you know, because I'm not an artist. And you take a blank canvas, and he just comes right down the middle of it, and he draws a line, and you're like, he just messed up. There's no way he can fix that. But he would. He would begin to draw. Every stroke would be something different. And he would come in to where you recognize that line that he made was a nice tree that's in the foreground. How did he do that? You know, it's got depth to it. Incredible. My point is, every stroke mattered. It was a part of the, the picture, right? It's a part of what it's doing. And so it is with the Old Testament. As we go through, it's like God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, taking men to write these things down is painting a glorious picture. 
with every story being another stroke in the picture, every story being another little, little, little brush stroke that's coming up. And, and while that story in and of itself and by itself may not make sense in the grand scheme, when you put them all together, you realize that he is painting a glorious picture of the serpent crusher, Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He's painting this. And so we who know this, having read our Bible, we are allowed, as Jesus says, to go back and read it in light of this truth. And so revelation that comes doesn't come. God didn't say whenever Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve fell, God didn't look at the serpent and go, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, serpent. I'm going to send my son. His name's going to be Jesus. He's going to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. I'm going to send him. He is going to live a perfect life, never sin. You're going to try your best. You're going to fail. He's going to live a perfect life, never sin. He's going to do some miracles, testify to who he is, do some teaching, letting everybody know this is what we came for. This is what's right. I'm going to send him down to you, and he is going to go to a cross, and you're going to think you're, you're going to win, and on the third day, we're going to laugh our head off at your sorry little tale. That's what we're going to do, devil. That's not what God does in Genesis 3. What he does is he says, you're going to die. I'm going to send one to come, and he's going to, he's going to put you rightly in your place. He's going to crush your head. Now, we don't know who that's going to be. We don't know how that's going to look. We don't know how the story's going to lay out. But all the rest of Scripture tells us that, piece by piece. So Jesus says, whenever they're talking about witnesses to him, Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you should believe me because Moses wrote about me. And when we come to Genesis, that's what we see. When we go to Exodus, that's what's happening. The picture is being painted and the picture is, the grand, glorious, beautiful picture is Jesus Christ. He is the one. And so ultimately, that's what you see in Genesis, and that's how this family starts out, and that's what it's building up to. You see the patriarchs. Abraham had Isaac, the son of promise, and Isaac had Jacob. Those are called, all throughout the Old Testament, you'll refer, these are the gods of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because it's those three that God speaks to directly. He gives his promises to directly to them, right? So after Jacob... And the 12 sons come after Jacob. You don't see God doing it the same way he did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the patriarchs. He spoke directly to them, giving them his promises. And then they passed down those promises to their sons and to the tribes and to the people. So you see it that way. You see this family working out. And while this family is special, this family is special, God's people, and they're, they're, they, they receive God's blessings, what's also incredible about Genesis is their failings are not disguised. We've walked through this. Noah got drunk and put himself in a compromised situation. Abraham lied to Absalom and then to Pharaoh again after he should have learned his lesson, Right? Isaac did the same thing, messing up by, by not doing it right with the, with, the, with the birthright and trying to be sneaky. But Jacob was even sneakier, right? He was the sneaky one. Only get out snook. Is that a word, out snook? Should be. Only to get out snook by Uncle Laban. Y'all see what I'm saying? It's us just deceit after. You see this. We recognize that even this chosen family is not perfect and their, their uh, misgivings are not hidden. At the same time, over and over again, it tells us they were righteous. Noah was a righteous man. Abraham was a righteous man. Isaac was a righteous. Jacob even learned his lesson and turned and put away all foreign gods and trusted after the Lord. And at the end, Jacob was a righteous man, it tells them. And in this... They had their failings, but God was still with them. He did not separate from them. He did not divorce them, if you will. He stayed faithful to his promises, even when these crooked sticks were, were kind of existing as, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He still drew straight lines with them. And so ultimately we see how God, remember, one of our themes throughout this, who is the main character of Genesis? God is. He's the main character. It's about him and how he acts on behalf of his people to bring about salvation. And what is God doing? God is trying to fix what was broken in Genesis chapter 3. And he begins that process. And so we see how he's going to fix it. And he's not just going to fix it for these, this family. 
It's this family that will be used to bring about the serpent crusher. But this family, the blessing that comes from them will not just be for them, it will be for the nations. That all of those that who trust in the, the one who comes from them, they will be blessed. You see, the nations and the salvation of all peoples was not a plan B in God's plan. In fact, you find it in Genesis chapter 12. When he gave those three, he said, not only will you get a land and your people will be great, but I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you from all nations. And so all the nations are in this plan. God has this family that he will bring about, but it will be the nations who will benefit from this serpent crusher who comes. It will be the nations who benefit from them. So these, this, this Genesis lays out the hope of not just this family who will become Israel as Jacob's name is changed, but the hope of all peoples is found here. That's why it's right for us. Uh, it's right for us in this room and in this space right now to come to this with our own hope because this is not just written for these people who are in direct descendants blood related to Israel this is written for all people who trust and believe in the serpent crusher who has come all of them and so you find Genesis bringing us all of that and when you get to Genesis 48 y'all thought I wasn't gonna get there didn't you when you get to Genesis 48 you start to see the book is now being tied together Closing it down. You have the stories in Genesis of, uh, as I said, you have Abraham and then you go into Isaac and then you go into Jacob. Jacob takes up some time, but then one of Jacob's children take up the most time, the story of Joseph, right? And how God takes uh, the story of Joseph and how he protects his family through this. Even when, even when the other brothers and Jacob has his 12 sons uh, and they get upset at Joseph because Joseph's bragging about all of them are going to worship him. I can't imagine how, why they get mad. They're all going to bow down to you, to me. Uh, Joseph has some dreams. He's got a coat that's got a bunch of colors on it and he's got some dreams and, and the brothers don't like what happens to him and so they sell him off into slavery and he goes off and you see how God works through all of that. Instead of him dying, being sawed off, never to be heard again, he rises to power uh, in Potiphar's house. Then he rises to power in Pharaoh's house till he becomes the most important man in Egypt under Pharaoh. And God uses him, God uses him to, to make sure that the family of God can survive a terrible famine. And so we know the story of how he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. He makes sure they have enough food, seven fat years, seven lean years, make sure he has enough food, everything's good. So when it's time to find food, the family, the brothers have to come to Egypt. When they get there, Joseph and them are reunited in some glorious way. And because of that, God's family is now protected. But that sounds, I mean, it's an incredible story. Like they should make movies about it. I think they have. But it's an incredible story, but there's, Tinges of hope and sadness in all of this. Genesis begins with God's people in a beautiful, glorious garden, communing with God daily, right? And it ends with God's people in a foreign land, fighting for their life. Isn't there something happening here? You see what I'm saying? You see the sadness in that? It starts with God's perfect design being met with Adam and Eve in the garden. They were naked. Y'all heard me? I said naked the other, the other time, and Allison, correct me, says naked, you know. Naked. What did that old preacher say? Y'all ever heard that? Naked, naked is when you don't have any clothes on. Naked is when you don't have any clothes on. You're up to something. Y'all ever heard that? And so that's, that's it. So I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best not to let Red Bank come out. And so ultimately, he's naked and not ashamed. Everything is good. Everything's working out right. And then sin enters in. And so the disastrous nature of sin becomes clear throughout the book of Genesis. And, and remember... God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of that fruit of that tree, you will surely die. Satan tried to play off on that. No, you won't surely die, will you? Right? He tried to play off. But what have we seen in Genesis? 
over and over again. He lived 939 years. Read chapter 5. And he died. And he died. And he died. And Abraham did what? Died. And Isaac did what? Died. And not only that, you see tragic deaths with Rachel. She died. Joseph uh, I mean, Jacob, you're going to find out, he, he, he died. Joseph died. You see, the consequences of sin become clear that they all have to go through what now? Death, because the wages of sin is death. And so while you see the goodness of God in providing a plan for redemption, you also see the consequences of sin wreaking havoc on God's people. You see it everywhere here. And so that's kind of how this book ends. With this hope and consequences of sin. This kind of disaster and then, the, and, and then the hope that you can have in light of it. With the promises of God. In chapter 48, you see Jacob is going to deal with Joseph. He has just been reunited with Joseph. And so he, he thought Joseph was dead. Now he's alive. Jacob has 12 sons. But Joseph is a special son now. And so what you find is Jacob here in chapter 48 is going to kind of relive his testimony to Joseph, talking about it. He's catching Joseph up on what happened, right? Joseph was taking it from him too soon. And now he's catching Joseph up on here. This is how God has dealt with me. I have the promises of God. And so for, for Jacob, uh, happy is the life that begins with God and ends with God. Now there may have been some, some tragedy in the middle for for Jacob but happy is the one that begins and ends with God right and so Jacob is relating this to Joseph and then for the first time Joseph brings in his children his two sons and he brings them in and what is what is uh, Jacob going to say in verse 8 when Israel jo that's Jacob remember when Israel saw Joseph's sons he said who are these by the way Jacob is old now he's old on I say old none of y'all in here is old as Jacob okay y'all don't y'all get over it. so Jacob is old and he can't see hardly remember this happened before Jacob's mind had to be brought back to when he was seeking the blessing from his dad who who he couldn't see either right and whenever Jacob entered in what did his dad say who are you who are you and so Jacob had deceived him with the fur, he, with the fur on his arms and lying. He brought the bowl of beans up in there he, after he gave some to Esau. Y'all remember that? Well, it happens now. Jacob is at the end of his life. He can't hardly see. He can't do it. He says his eyes have grown dim. And now Joseph brings in his two sons. And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him. He kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Jacob is, is rejoicing in, in, this, in this glorious providence. He thought Joseph was dead, and now he's got Joseph's kids in front of him. He thought he would never see his son, now he gets to see his grandchildren, right? And so he's rejoicing in this. He's celebrating here. And now he's going to turn and he says to them as he does this and, and, and lays it out, he's going to bless them. Now, it's common as we saw this with, with uh, Abraham and then with Isaac. And this is what the whole Jacob and Esau thing was about. As the patriarch of the family would pass away, he would bless his children. He would pronounce a blessing on them. And this is a very important part of their life. And so here, this is what's happening. He's passing away. He brings them in. He's going to bless them. And he's going to change some things up here. He is going to tell the two sons of Joseph, who we know as Manasseh and Ephraim, he is going to tell them, you are now my sons. He says, you're my kids. Because of what Joseph has done and how he was separated from him, and now he's rejoicing, he's got his grandkids, Jacob in some way is saying, I'm bringing you as my children, not my grandchildren, but my children. And what does that mean? That means you get inheritance like the rest of them. He's bringing him in. So what happens here is we find something interesting. Joseph is not going to receive land in the, in the next country in the sense that there'll be the tribe of Joseph. That's not what happens. Because of Joseph's faithfulness, 
His two sons, he will get what they call the double portion of the blessing. Because of Joseph's faithfulness, he'll get the double portion and his two sons will inherit land, not just him, right? So they get as much as everybody else. So there's still going to be 12 tribes. Joseph doesn't receive land because his two sons do. And then Levi, of course, he will not receive an area of land because he's the priest and they have the cities that they have. And so it's Manasseh and Ephraim who will receive that double portion and Joseph will be recognized. And this is a huge blessing that Jacob gives because of who Joseph is. Joseph blesses them, gives him the double portion. And then he says down there in verse 21, he said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Now, remember how important this is to them. That blessing was tied to that land. That's what it was tied to here. It was tied to that place. And so remember, when, when, when things got bad for people is when they left the place of God's promise. When they left that. Abraham left it, it got bad. It got bad. Lot, he tried to pull it off somewhere else. Didn't work out too good for Lot. Y'all can go back and read Genesis 18, and he lost everything right there. You know what I'm saying? Didn't work out. Why? Because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Jacob, he had to leave the land, and he, he had to get back to the place of promise. And where God, over and over again, you have seen, God said, that's where my blessing is. So that's what it's tied to. So here he says to him, I know right now we're in Egypt. I know right now we are not, we're not home though. And, and you got to remember, Joseph is there. He's risen to power. He's done so much in this place. This may feel like home to him, but his father says, listen, you need to know that you've got to get back to the place of promise. You've got to get back to the place of promise. And then he says, it's time. Jacob called his sons in chapter 49 called his sons and said gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come he's blessing them by talking to them about the future and he tells them what's coming and in these blessings you see him go through the list of names of his sons starting with that first one Reuben who as we've talked about before has a sandwich named after him you have Reuben here the firstborn but remember Reuben had a problem who was, it, who was it that sold and tried to kill Joseph and made that decision to put him into it? It was Reuben. Reuben would be one who has disqualified himself, according to Jacob. Again, he doesn't lose out on the, on the promise, if you will, but there are effects of sinfulness. It should be Reuben that, that, the, that the most of the inheritance goes through, but that's not what's going to happen here. He says, you're as unstable as water. You should have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. Remember, Reuben messed around. Remember? Y'all can go back and read it. Reuben messed around with Bilhah, his his his. his concubine there and so you've done that now you have lost it Simeon and Levi they messed up too remember what Simeon and Levi did they tried to defend the right of their sister and they did so in a violent way killing a bunch of people and so he says to Simeon and Levi he says your brothers your weapons of violence and your swords let my soul come not into your counsel O my glory be not joined to their company for in the anger they killed men and in their willingness they hamstrung oxen cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So because of their sinfulness you have it. it's almost like we're crossing people off the list right? Serpent crusher's not coming from that one. Serpent crusher's not coming from this one. You guys will still get your inheritance, but because of your sinfulness, there's consequences. There's consequences that come. Now, if we're thinking about who is it, because we've seen this before, who is it that the kingly line will come through, right? Who is it that's going to, to, to the king will come through? It may, you, you may think it should be Reuben. He's the oldest, but it's not. The next one, Simeon and Levi, the next two, not them either. You could think it's Joseph, because look at Joseph has this kingly part to him, right? I mean, everywhere he's done, he's been a leader, and they've come to him. And in fact, you see in Egypt, because of what Joseph does, you already get a glimpse of how the nations come to learn and grow from him, right? They have to come to Egypt to find food because of what Joseph does. So the nations are blessed even in that. Maybe it's Joseph. 
but it's not Joseph either. In fact, what's interesting is when you get to the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament, Joseph is only mentioned a few times about his faith. And most of them are kind of just side statements about it. And then in Hebrews, what does it remember Joseph for? Y'all remember? We'll talk about it in a little bit. In Hebrews chapter 11, that hall of faith where it talks about all these things, it remembers Joseph because of chapter 50 and what he did at his death. Not anything else. I find that to be fascinating. I mean, if you want to encourage people with faith, look at Joseph. And surely the author of Hebrews knows they all know these stories. Maybe he's doing something else. But what I do think is we may be surprised of what God is impressed with. Think about that for a second. We think God should be impressed with our faithfulness for this and for that and for every little thing. But we may be surprised of what God looks at and goes, you know what, that's that's faith. Sometimes it's the smallest of things that he calls out, right? Sometimes when you look at Hebrews 11, you notice what they said. It's the smallest of things. And for Joseph, you see the same thing. It's kind of interesting. Joseph gets the longest section in Genesis to deal with him. And then he gets the shortest little piece later, maybe. But there is one who the king will come through. And it's not one that we necessarily think because this one had his troubles too, didn't he? Remember Judah. And remember chapter 38. And remember Judah lost two sons and he wasn't going to dare give the third one up. And because of that, he did some crazy stuff happen. Y'all remember? Y'all can go read it for yourself. And, and, and in this, Judah had to state, you know, his daughter-in-law, Tamar, was more righteous than him because why? She believed in the promise. If Judah had not, if Tamar had not done what she was supposed to do, then the line would not continue. The, the seed would not go on. The family would not go because Judah was willing to keep his third son so that there aren't any more children. The first one had to be redeemed because he died before he had kids. Judah was willing to hold it back and so it doesn't continue. But Tamar took things into her own hands and she has a child. She's more righteous than I because she testifies to the promise. We got to continue this line, whatever it takes, maybe. And we look at this and we see this is crazy. But in that sense, if she doesn't do what happens, what, ha- what, what do we know? Y'all remember in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, it gives the lineage of Christ, right? Who's in that lineage? Tamar. Four ladies are mentioned. Tamar's one of them. Because of what she did and why? Because when Jacob gets to Judah, listen to what he says. His first three sons, y'all have disqualified yourself. You'll get your inheritance of land, but it's going to be trouble for you, and you've disqualified yourself. But Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine he has washed his garments in wine his vesture is in the blood of grapes his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk now what happens here is interesting to me one god picks who he wants to pick does that make sense to everybody just go through and look i mean it makes no sense that david is the chosen one David's the youngest and he's the ruddy one, right? But God says, that's the one. It makes no sense in some of the judges he picks like Gideon who, 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 who doesn't have any courage whatsoever. It doesn't make any sense that he picks Moses who stutters and just committed murder, right? It doesn't make any sense that he picks these ones that he picks. He picks them because he has a sovereign choice to pick those ones, right? And oftentimes God is going to say, you think you know, but I know better. And he looks now, and the one he chooses out of all of these sons is Judah. And he says, Judah, you're the one. It's going to be from your line the king will come. So there's no no, uh, reason for us to do anything other right now than to mention exactly what the elder says in Revelation chapter 5. 
whenever that scroll is there that holds all the secrets of all humanity that testifies to the word of God that testifies to how salvation will come and it is sealed and, and, and John can't find anybody that's capable to break that seal y'all remember that Revelation chapter 5 he says it look, he looks above the earth under the earth and on the earth he looks all over creation he can't find one worthy to break the seal and bring redemption he can't find one and he begins to weep and the elder walks up to him and taps him on the shoulder and says weep no more and what does the elder say look who's coming the lion of the tribe of judah he's referring directly back to genesis chapter 49 Remember the promise that from Judah's tribe will come the one who will reign forever. Remember that promise? There he is. The serpent crusher is here from the tribe of Judah. He has come. And here in this passage in Genesis 49, we begin to see how these others will receive inheritance, but it is Judah who will bring and continue this line of the seed. He goes through, he lists all of his sons. We can go through and list them as well. We'll see some of them and we'll be referring back to them because you'll be reminded of some of them through, throughout the text. You'll see, uh, you'll see how he, 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 it works. You'll see them in, in the judges. You'll see some of them, especially in Joshua as they receive land and other things we'll refer to them. Jacob blesses all of his children in this way, telling them, letting them know what is coming. He even does it with Joseph, and Joseph's is a beautiful blessing here, speaking about who Joseph is and the God that he serves. And then finally after this, after he blesses him, it's time for him to die. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, verse 28 says. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave what is, what, it, what is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. In his dying breath, we see both the consequences of sin, death, and we also see the hope of the promise. We see the hope of the promise because he says what? Take me home to bury me. There with the promises, take me there. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear saying, I'm about to die, and in my tomb I hewned out of myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now let me go and bury him, then I will return. And Pharaoh said, go and bury your father. This is an act of faithfulness. This is an act of belief. This is an act of trusting in the promises of God. It's more than just simply saying, I've got a, I've got a burial plot out there in the cemetery. You don't have to buy me another one. It's more than just looking at doing the details. This is a statement of Jacob saying, in Egypt, I am a sojourner. I am a pilgrim. This is not home. I want to be buried where the promise is found. That's where my hope is. And in this, you see death and hope. Death and hope. Both of those things together, for he knew this was not the end. The text goes on. Joseph does this. He goes through it. And now it's time for Joseph. Joseph meets with his brothers. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph, this is chapter 50, verse 15. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Recognize what they're saying. They're still not sure what their fate is. 
because they sold Joseph into slavery and Joseph may have just been keeping them alive because they're dead. And now the dad's dead. Y'all got it? So let's see what happens. So they send a message to Joseph, meaning we didn't go to Joseph because he may kill us. Let's just send him a message. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Who knows if he really said that? they just hoping that they won't kill him. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. One of the great statements in all of Scripture. One of the great statements. I mean, you already had, if y'all remember, we went through this last semester as we met together. You already had this incredible reunion. This incredible reunion of brothers and the weeping and how Joseph worked the deal, hiding the cup, getting Benjamin to come, making sure he was alive. Just the intensity of the moment. It was incredible. And now you have another moment like this. It's time maybe Joseph can take out his vengeance, but that's not who Joseph is because Joseph knows his life is in God's hands. That's what he says. Y'all think y'all did all this? My life's in God's hands. He holds his brothers not accountable for this. He'd already forgiven them. He'd moved past it. Why? Because look at one of the great verses in all of Scripture. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And I mean this with all my heart. One of the great verses, because you'll hear this throughout Scripture. As you, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What you did was try to kill me. You made a ruling in my life that we're going to put Joseph to death. And God overruled your ruling. And I am in God's hands. And so what you meant for evil has saved your own life. Because God is greater than you. This is the same exact thing Peter is going to tell the Sanhedrin after they put Jesus to death and he rises again in Acts chapter 3. What y'all did, this Jesus whom you crucified, God made him alive. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant for good. Y'all, I'm telling you, that statement is one of the most profound because how do we not go through life without trusting the Lord in what he leads us to do, right? Man, the last thing I want to think is that the life that we live has no purpose. The last thing we want to think, we see hard things happen. We see difficult things happen. And people come to me all the time and say, why did God allow this? And you know what my answer is? It's real profound. I've got no idea. I don't know. I don't know why God does all the things he does. I don't know why he allows all the things he, he allows. What I do know is, what I do know is that what God does is for our good. It's for our good. In other words, the bad things that happen have a purpose. And some people say, I can't believe in God because of all the bad things that happen. And I sit there and go, how could you not? Because if, if you don't believe in God and bad things are happening then those things are just random. They have no meaning. They have no purpose. They're just out there. If you don't believe in God and, and you're dealing with, with suffering and heartache, then that suffering and heartache is just random and purposeless, and therefore you're dealing with it for no good reason. But if there is a God, then you know that even the difficult things, even the suffering, even the pain, even the heartache is for a purpose. And that purpose is to mold you and shape you into the image of his beloved son. That's what Romans 8 is about, right? Romans 8, 28, we know that passage. You know, you know it. All things are working together for good for those who love God, right? We know that. We love that passage. But that next verse is where the kicker is. Why is it for good? Because not everything feels good. It's good because it's conforming us into the image of his son. That's why it's good. 
So even the, the slicing and the cutting, the suffering and the pain is conforming us into the image of Christ because we know that this life is not the end. And I love how Genesis ends because Genesis seems so final. He got Abraham, he came, he died. You got, you got Isaac, he came, he died. You got Jacob, he's dead. Put him in the grave back in the, he's got a little place hewn out for him in the cave. And now you got Joseph and he's dying too. You seem so final, but with each and every one of them, they know this is not the end. Even here early on in the scriptures in Genesis, they know there's something greater. We got a promise that we're holding on to of something greater. And everything's conforming us right now to get us there. So what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So I forgive you because I'm in God's hands, not yours. Not yours. Incredible verse. He did it, bring it for good to bring about the many people should keep alive as are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to him. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, he lived 110 years. Uh, he came to Egypt, by the way, when he was 17, when he was younger. So here he has 93 years living in Egypt, running the show. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. In other words, he had, it was a great, great, is that a great, great, great grandfather? Is that how that works? I don't know. Whatever. Children of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land and to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph, even in his death, had provided 93 years running the show in Egypt. He had put his people down in the land of Goshen, the greenest part, down by the Nile, the nicest part. He had set them up for good. And it may be easy for Joseph to say, hey, I set y'all up. Retirement's in order. Y'all stay right here. You'll have everything you need. But what does Joseph say? This is not our home. So even in Joseph rising to power, even him setting them to Goshen, he says there's coming a day when God will deliver us from here. By the way, between Genesis 50 and Exodus chapter 1, y'all know how long that is? 400 years. But there's coming a day when God will deliver us from here. And I love what Joseph does at the end. Listen to what he says. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel. I mean, this guy owns Egypt. This guy can do whatever he wants. He can take the nicest place. For all we know, he could have been buried up in one of them pyramids they got. Y'all know what I'm talking about? He does what he wants to. And what does Joseph say? God will surely visit you, shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. In other words, they didn't put him in the ground. They didn't put him in the grave. Why? They're waiting on the day when his bones would be taken back. They're waiting on that moment. Joseph knew he was just a pilgrim in, in this place. And where God was, was in the land that he had promised for him. And he said, that's where I want to be. I want to be with the promise. I want to be there. Joseph was raised in places. There's an encouragement to me here. Because Joseph was raised in places that God was not worshipped. Yet Joseph was faithful. Joseph was faithful. Oftentimes we think that we need to be in a place where God's worshipped and everything else in the culture and we have the Bible belt around us. Joseph was raised in places where God was not worshipped. Yet he was faithful. He was faithful to the end. And even in the end, even though he had everything Egypt had to offer, he could do whatever he wanted there. In the end of that, he knew that was not his home and this was not his place. A lesson that all of us can learn. No matter what this world can give us, no matter what it affords us, no matter whatever wealth, no matter whatever privilege, no matter whatever thing we may have, we recognize in the end, this is not it. There's something better. There's something greater. There's a promise we have of something far more glorious. Set me up for that, not for this. Set me up for there, not for here. Don't put me in the ground in Egypt. Take me back to the promise. Take me back to the promise. Joseph had hope even in the midst of it. Not in Egypt, not in this world, but in the promises of God. In the promises of God. 
I believe as we learn from Genesis, we see the terrible effects of sin. Look at what was lost. Look at what was lost in doing it their way. Look at what was lost in thinking they knew better than God. What was lost was communion with him. What was lost was paradise, if you will, in the garden. What was lost was all of those good things he had, he had promised in that way. Sin is devastating. And that one sin with Adam, as we see, didn't just affect him and Eve that day on that Tuesday or whatever day it was. It affected all of us from that day forward. And sin's the same way. It never just has its, its desire is never just to deal with you. It wants to affect everyone around you and everything, everything it touches. It wants to destroy and it's looking to destroy. And Satan's at the heart of this in Genesis and he's looking to destroy. And we know as God had created everything and it was good and there was perfect peace, here comes the disturber of God's peace. And he disturbs it through this, these lies that are fed. And these lies, once they are believed and they're acted upon, are devastating. And we see that in, in Genesis. But what we also see is no matter how devastating they are, no matter how wicked they may be, they cannot stop the plan of God. He will do what he will do. And in doing what he will do, by his glorious grace, he decided to crush the head of that serpent and bring salvation to his people again through his promises. That's what he decided to do. And Joseph knew, and Jacob knew, and all those others found out that this world was not their hope. It's the one that is to come, the home that is to come to them. And that's how Genesis ends. Devastating. Started out in a glorious garden in God's good creation and ended up in Egypt. Not home, not in their place. Exiles. But even in that, there's hope. And we too today, as the scripture says, as God's people are nothing more than strangers and pilgrims here that we look for a greater hope. And that's the land of promise that has been provided through us through our great serpent crusher, Christ Jesus. He's got that waiting. So in that, we hope, just as Joseph did. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in presenting us with your word. You didn't uh, keep us guessing as to who you are and your character and nature. You have been on display through the power of your word. And so, God, we thank you for your word, for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for the testimony of those saints in Genesis. Though imperfect, we see that they're faithful, God. And you kept them to the end. And so, God, we pray that we too can be faithful. And we recognize, Father, that, that just like they believed in the promise, so must we believe. They believe in the promise that you made and that you would keep for them. And they trusted you to keep it. We believe in the same promises, God. And we see that you have already kept those promises for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So how much more, God, should we trust you and believe in you and recognize this world is not our home. That we look to one place that is greater. And whatever may happen to us here, Father, whatever may difficulty may come, may we say with Joseph what... The world means what the devil means for evil, you mean for good, to bring about salvation of your people. And so, God, help us to be faithful. Be faithful, understanding that everything that comes our way is to carve us into the image of your son, to understand that the, the devil and all of his evil ways have been ultimately dealt with on the cross in Jesus Christ our Lord, and to understand that that God of peace that we serve, that you are, Father, that God of peace is the one who will bring ultimate peace to each and every one of us. Father, thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.